Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan rajeem Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad al-Fatihi lima uglik wa khatimi lima sabaq. Nasr al-Haqi bil-Haqi wal-Hadi ila siratika mustaqeem. Wa ala alihi haqqa qadirihi wa miktarihi al-Azim. O Allah, we ask you to send your blessings upon our Master Muhammad, the opener of what was closed and the seal of what came before him, champion of the truth by the truth and guide to the straight path and upon his family and companions, as is befitting his noble rank. Ameen. Allahumma ya kareem akramna bi nur al-fahm, wa akhrajna min dhulumat al-wahm, wa la hawla wa la quwata ila billah. O Allah, the noble, the generous, we ask you to ennoble us with the light of understanding and to remove us from the shadows of illusion. And there is no power nor might except through God. Ameen. Uh, we're finishing up our section on Iman, uh, which means now, you know, there's six points of Iman that we've talked about, or Iman or belief. And uh, just to recap them very quickly, uh, these are belief in God, his angels, his books, his messengers, the day of judgment, and the divine decree, both the good and the evil thereof which is what we'll be discussing tonight, is the divine decree. Um, more popularly known um, as predestination, although it's, we're not strict predestinationists, um, there, there's some wiggle room there, but the divine decree um, or in Arabic, Qadr, uh, is what we'll be discussing tonight. And so along with that, what we're going to discuss is, you know, like that balance that we do have between strict predestination and free will, which is kind of like a classical um, issue that, you know, is talked about very thoroughly in all kinds of different theologies, all kinds of different philosophies, right? We have our picture of that. We have our understanding of that. So we'll get into that. It also really, um, uh, it addresses the problem of evil. Like if everything happens by God's decree, then, you know, what do you do with evil, right? The fact that there are truly terrible things that happen in the world. Uh, this subject kind of addresses that question. Um, but we've been talking about each of these six points sort of in you know the context of like, why is it that we are asked to believe in these five other things aside from God? Like, what is it telling us about God that is so important to know that he actually commands us to believe in these things? And so we've touched on that for each of the topics so far. Um, the, the example that I, I really like the most is like the prophets. Like we have to believe in the prophets um, because belief in the prophets will correct you from having a understanding of God that uh, gives you this picture of like this boogeyman in the sky, like this God who is like waiting to judge you, waiting to punish you. No, like the prophets came with glad tidings and they came to every nation that ever existed on the face of the earth. They are a demonstration of God's goodwill 
towards humanity. So you cannot believe in the prophets and believe that God is somehow vindictive or that God is somehow like harsh and unmerciful. No, rather you, you, you must be convinced that God is a merciful God. Similarly with the divine decree, this tells us something important about God. Um, and really what it does is it, it sort of completes our understanding of Tawhid or of monotheism. Like we say we believe in one God, but what exactly does that entail? We're going to get into like why uh, the divine decree or Qadr, um, it sort of rounds out that picture. It, it gives us a full picture of what God's oneness is actually like. Um, and, you know, at the more emotional level, at like the level of more like lived experience, it gives us a sense of certainty that everything's in God's hands. Like, it doesn't matter what you may be going through right now. God has you. Like, you're, you're in the palm of his hand. Uh, there, there is nothing that will uh, overtake you that God has not already ordained for you. And that because he has ordained it for you, we necessarily understand it to be good for us in some way, even when we can't see it. Um, so we're going to get into each of those themes. But I want to talk about the word Qadr first, because this kind of gets at um, this balance that we have between predestination and free will. Qadr is a word that really denotes power. And I point that out to say that it does not denote will in the same way that we think of will. Whereas like God's will would necessarily override our wills. Like we don't have free will. Qadr is referring to God's power. So that what we understand when we are talking about Qadr is that nothing happens except that he has empowered it to happen. And I really like you know, it, it would sound funny to translate the word this way into English, but I really like the word permission here. Everything happens by God's permission. Or you could say everything happens by his leave. Right? This is kind of like a medieval way of talking. But like when uh, a king would leave uh, someone in charge of his kingdom while he's away. A good example of this is actually Robin Hood. Have you guys seen Robin Hood? So uh, Richard the Lionheart, right? He's fighting in the Crusades and he leaves his brother, King John, uh, to rule in his place, right? King John is ruling by Richard's leave, by his permission. So that what's implied is like King John makes a ruling. It has the stamp of approval of Richard. That, that's implied. Like I, I'm leaving you in my stead to rule in my place. The same thing is true with God's qadr, with the power that he gives us. We have to make a distinction between will and power. And we'll, we'll dive a little bit more deeply into this. But what the word is implying, in fact, is that God has enabled, he has given permission for everything that happens in the world, whether it's us getting up and getting ready to go to work or it's a leaf falling from the tree. This is all happening by God's permission. That does not mean necessarily that he wills everything to happen. And we'll, we'll get, I, I see confused looks on people's faces. We'll get more into to what that means. But the distinction here really is 
while to, to address this problem of evil. God creates evil, right? He says this in Surah Al-Falaq. قُولْ أَعْضُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ مِنْ شَارِمَا خَلَقِ Say, I seek refuge in the Lord of the, the dawn, of the breaking day, from the evil that he has created. So what we understand is God creates evil, even the bad things. These happen by his qadr, by his divine decree. But he does not do evil. He himself does not will for evil to befall us. But we live in a world where that is a possibility. He has given permission for it to take place. And this is part of our, our trial, our existence as human beings, is to undergo that and persevere through it. So to understand qadr is to know that everything good that happens to you and everything ill that happens to you, um, that this all comes from God. There is no distinction. It all comes from God. And getting into like why this really sort of like rounds out our understanding of tawheed is uh, we have to understand that there is no competing power with God. Evil is not this other thing out there that happens despite his power, that happens despite what he is capable of doing. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, this was always an impression that I got as a Christian. You know, um, and I, I don't know how, like, theologically sound this is, because I didn't get too deep into Christian theology. But um, I always got the impression from the way that Christians talked about evil, or they talked about Satan, for example, that the earth is just kind of like the devil's playground. Like it is a place where he has free reign, where God's dominion does not necessarily extend. And that towards the end of time, there will be a genuine battle, right, between God and Satan for the souls of humanity, right? This is at the very least a theological impression that I got as a Christian, whether or not that is sound Christian theology, I'm actually not too sure. But um, this is the way that many Christians would talk about the problem of evil. Well, you know, like this world is just characterized by Satan's influence. We don't believe that. What we believe is that God has dominion over this world too. That Satan, when he speaks to God, right? When God creates Adam, السلام, the prophet Adam, and he commands the angels to bow down to Adam, and they all do except for one, except for Iblis. And uh, Iblis says, I am going to attempt to draw humanity away from you. I'm going to tempt them, right? He asks for God's permission to do this. There's no illusion that he can do anything except by God's leave, right? By God's permission. Only then can he ask for uh, respite. He says, give me respite, mean like, give me, give me some time to see if I can tempt away the sons of Adam away from you. And God grants him that. So that what we understand from that is that God's unity and the unity of his power and his dominion over all of creation is complete. It's solid. It's whole. There, there's no caveat to it. There is no, no way in which it is qualified or compromised. Even evil takes place by his leave. So when we're talking about the divine decree, 
what we are attempting to do is to establish a relationship of submission to God. Um, it is not our job to fully understand how God's decree works. And even here, you know, there's, there's some nuance, there's some caveats. But ultimately, what we are to take away from this is a sense of peace, that everything that happens is happening by his decree, right? Nothing was a mistake, right? Like nothing happened on accident. Everything is happening by his decree. And there's, um, there's a story that related to this theme that I, I really love. Not my story, it was related to me, but um, it, it illustrates, I think, what type of relationship to God's decree uh, we ought to be cultivating. And this is a story that comes from one of our elders in the community. His name's Uncle Rafi. And um, Uncle Rafi, mashallah, became Muslim while he was in prison. And his mentor, like the man who brought him to Islam, was a guy named Big Muhammad. That's what everyone called him, Big Muhammad. And Uncle Rafi talks about like the first time that he noticed like there was something profoundly different, like in a good way, about Big Muhammad, was when like the scuffle broke out in the dining hall at the prison. And one of the prisoners attempted to get a hold of uh, the, the weapon of one of the security guards there. And he actually got a hold of it for a minute. And he got a shot off uh, before they could wrestle him to the ground. And he said, when that shot went off, everyone hit the ground. They all ducked underneath their tables, except for Big Muhammad. And so, you know, like there was this big ruckus, like, uh, and eventually everyone realized that the situation's okay. They all got back up. They started eating again. And Uncle Rafi asked Big Muhammad, why didn't you duck with the rest of us? And Big Muhammad said to him, I have certainty that when the angel of death comes for me, he will not miss. Like when it's my time, it's my time. And there's nothing that will stop my time from coming. But until it's my time, there is nothing that can kill me. An attitude of absolute certainty and peace towards his fate. That is what a genuine belief in God's qadr gives us. It's like, whatever is meant to happen will happen. And we'll get into why, like, that doesn't mean, you know, you don't try, you don't strive for things in life. But ultimately, like, you don't need to fear. Like, your fate is your fate. And it will find you one way or the other. So in the meantime, just trust in God. An attitude of submission and certainty is what this ought to draw out of us as we understand it more and more. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, from a book that's called the Akira Tahawiya, um, which is an Akira is a um, is a creed. It's a theology, you might say. And this one uh, is made. It was written by uh, a man named Imam Tahawi. And it's a very famous creed that is seen to be like very authoritative, very orthodox uh, in what it has to say about the points of faith. So I'm going to read a little bit from his section on Qadr. And, you know, we'll discuss as we go along, inshallah. 
Now for this first sec uh, section, I want you to hear me out until the end. Okay, like don't form a judgment on what's being said until we get to the end of the passage and we'll kind of have a chance to discuss it. Because I think, especially for intellectually curious people, this, it starts out on like a prickly note. It, like, it, it might rub you the wrong way. It rubbed me the wrong way the first time I read it. But you really have to like get to the end and, and understand what he's saying um, to take the full picture. So he says, delving into the decree, meaning qadr, is a means to spiritual loss, a descent into deprivation, and a path towards transgression. So beware and take every precaution against that, whether through perusal, ideation, or suggestion. God, the sublime and exalted, has concealed knowledge of the decree from his creatures and has prohibited them from desiring it. As the sublime said in his book, he is not questioned about what he does. It is they who will be questioned. Hence, anyone who asks, why has he done this? Has rejected the judgment of the book. And whoever rejects the judgment of the book is among the disbelievers. The above epitomizes what one with an illumined heart among the protected of God needs. In addition, it is the rank of the deeply rooted in knowledge, given that knowledge is of two types. And I want you to remember that he says this part right here. Given that knowledge is of two types, the humanly accessible and the humanly inaccessible. To either deny accessible knowledge or to claim the inaccessible is disbelief. Faith is not sound unless accessible knowledge is embraced and the pursuit of inaccessible knowledge is abandoned. Okay, so first of all, he says delving deeply into this matter of other is something that we ought not to do. Now, the Arabic word that's being translated here as delving deeply is ta'amaka, which means like really to like ponder, like to mull on, to like chew on an idea. It literally means to like go deep into something. Like if we say something is amik, it's like that's deep, right? A, a, a deep thought that we have it comes from the same root as ta'amaka. So what he's saying is you ought not delve so deeply into this matter of the divine decree that you start getting beyond the limits of your rationality, which is entirely possible to do with this matter. It's entirely possible to start asking questions that are frankly beyond the scope of what your rational mind can attest to. He makes a distinction between two types of knowledge. And this is exactly the distinction um, that's important to understand. There are rational questions that we can ask about the divine decree. But there is a level at which our rationality no longer serves us. And at, it is at that point where what he is saying is that it is best not to delve beyond that point. Um, and, you know, asking God, about his decree is something that even the Quran shows us that it, it is a, an acceptable thing to do. So I don't, I don't want anyone to take the, the picture from this, that like what we're saying here is there's no questions about this. Just accept it blindly and move along. That's not what's being said. In that instance of Adam's creation, alayhi salam, that I mentioned earlier, when God creates Adam, 
the angels say to him, will you establish one who will commit bloodshed and sow corruption on the earth while we glorify your praises and proclaim your holiness? So, you know, the angels are looking at Adam and, you know, with some sense of foresight that they are endowed with, they're seeing like, this will be a violent creature. Like human beings will be violent. They will commit bloodshed. They will engage in corruption during their existence on the earth. So like, you know, we have a question about that. Like what's going on here? Why would you make this creation when we are perfectly obedient to you? And if you remember from the section on angels, angels cannot disobey God. They are not created with that capacity to disobey God. They are perfectly obedient. So what do we understand first from this question? That this type of question, it's a question about God's decree. It's not disobedience. But look at what happens next. God says to them, I know what you do not know. He doesn't, actually, he doesn't answer their question. Like, yeah, well, actually, you know, like, yeah, they will, there will be some bloodshed, but some good will come out of it. He just says, I know what you do not know. And there is no further questioning on their part after that. So the initial question there is not disobedience. Continuing to question God after he says, you know what, this is actually beyond you. This is not for you. This knowledge that you're asking about, it's not for you. Questioning beyond that point is disobedience. And so this is the distinction that we make. Because God has endowed us with rational minds, like we can think logically, we can ask questions that are rational and logical about God's decree. Um, but once we get uh, to the point where we have exhausted that capability, that's where we end. So, uh, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into like what that actually looks like. Um, what can we rationally discern about God's decree? So Imam Tahawi continues, hence, if everyone united to remove from existence what God, the sublime and exalted, decreed would exist, they could not. Likewise, if they all united to introduce something into existence that God, the sublime and exalted, did not decree, they would be unable to do so. The pen's work is done concerning what was, is, and will be until the day of resurrection. And the pen here is referring to a creation of God that basically writes out what his qadr is. So he says, whatever misses a person could not have afflicted him. And whatever afflicts him could not have missed him. Right? Going back to Big Muhammad. This is exactly what Big Muhammad said, right? When the angel of death comes for me, he will not miss. If it was meant to hit me, it would have hit me. If it's not meant to hit me, there is no way it could hit me. Now, this type of belief could be abused to either engage in like extreme risk-taking or extreme apathy. So like, what practically are we to do with this knowledge? Well, um, we understand that... Uh, you know, we ought to take the available means that we have at our disposal to achieve the ends that we want in this life. That this issue of qadr, this belief that we have, does not give us permission either to do things that are completely reckless, where let's say, you know, the 
vast probability is that we or someone else might be harmed. It also does not give us the permission to just lay back and say, well, you know, like I'm really hungry, it's lunchtime, but if God decrees it, I'm going to have a sandwich, right? We don't, we don't think a sandwich is just going to show up by God's permission. And this is a famous hadith. You have probably heard it, but I'll reiterate it. You know, a man comes to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and <clears throat> he says, should I tie my camel and trust in Allah or should I leave her untied and trust in Allah? Right? This is a better one, right? They travel through the desert. You lose your camel in the desert. That's pretty much a death sentence, right? If you're really far out, you're done. Like it's hot. Like you're not going to be able to get to where you're going. You will probably die. So the man is asking, like, what does this belief in God's decree actually entail for me, right? When I'm traveling, ought I to trust in God and also tie up my camel so that it doesn't run away in the middle of the night? Or should I just trust in God? And it's like, if Allah wills it, the camel will be there in the morning. If he doesn't, it'll be gone. Right? The Prophet said, tie her and trust in Allah. So take the available means to achieve the end that you want and then put your trust in God. What we understand by this is we actually do everything that we possibly can to get what we want out of life. But that we understand at the end of the day, the results are not up to us. We do what is right, right? And we do what is smart. We do what is logical. But we understand that the result of those actions are not up to us. And understanding this, you know, um, like you, you meet people who are like deeply at peace with themselves. They live this way. They absolutely live this way. Um, you know, like, alhamdulillah, I have a great life. Beautiful. Like, you know, couldn't ask for more, really. I didn't plan any of it. Right? Really, like, I, I grew up in a church, for God's sakes. Here I am teaching a class on Islam. You know, I, um, I never expected that I would go to grad school or marry the woman that I did. Like, it all happened despite, you know, my efforts for things that were quite different, right? And yet here I am with a, a life that I could not have imagined. That's beautiful. But when you take this attitude, you understand, like, God's steering the ship. You know, you, you have your desires, you ought to pursue them, but ultimately, whether or not you reach your destination, that's beyond your control. That's beyond your control. And that's a great secret to happiness. Similarly, like with the story of Hajar, alayhi salam, the, the wife of Ibrahim, alayhi salam, right? Ibrahim takes them out into the desert, leaves them at the place where the city of Mecca now exists. And you know, she's asking him on the way there, like, where are you taking us? What's going on? And finally, she asks him, did your Lord decree this? And he responds to her, yes, yes, this is by God's command. And she says, then we are content. We are content. She says up front, you know up front that she is content with God's decree. And yet when Ibrahim salam, leaves her there, what does she start doing? She starts running between the hills of Safa and Marwa, looking for water for herself and her son, Ismail. Why? She already knows that like God willed this. 
She already believes that that means there is something good that will come out of it. But she doesn't lay back and just, you know, wait for salvation. She starts looking for water. She knows that they need water. It's a desert, right? And that's where the well of Zamzam that we have down to this day comes from, that feeds millions of pilgrims every single year. When you take the available means that you have at your disposal and put your trust in God, beautiful things come out of it. And that's really what we're after, like the sense of trust, the sense of peace, and the expectation of good things that will come out of this. So I'll continue uh, with Imam Tahawi. He says, a servant of God is obliged to know that God's omniscience, meaning his knowledge of everything, preceded everything in his creation. He then measured everything out exactly and decisively. There is none among his creatures, either in the heavens or the earth, who can nullify, overrule, remove, change, detract from, or add to his decree. All of the affirmation, all of the aforementioned, is part of the doctrine of faith, the principles of knowledge, and the ascent of his unity and sovereignty as God, the sublime and exalted. As he said in his book, and he created everything and determined its measure. And he, the sublime and exalted, also said, and the command of God is an ordained decree. So getting back to this idea of it, like completing our understanding of Tawheed, that when we understand that God is one, what we are saying is he is absolutely one in his power so that this creation that we inhabit, there is nothing that happens except by his permission. It's all down to him. It's all down to him. Now, um, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit about uh, like the good results that come out of, uh, you know, accepting God's decree, still doing everything in your power to get what you want out of life, but accepting that the result is out of your hand. Um, you know, Imam Atahawi is saying there is extreme danger in not accepting this, in being uh, sort of possessive over what the results of your actions are, are questioning so far that you really get beyond the limits of what you're capable of understanding. And this is absolutely something, like, um, this is absolutely something that I think we can observe, right? Like it may sound abstract, but I think you can observe this uh, in people's lives. When tragedy is, you can usually see this when tragedy befalls people, right? Because oftentimes when something tragic happens to us, we start asking the question, why? Wait, why, did, why me, right? How often have we heard that question? When something tragic happens to someone, why me? Like, why did this happen to me? Now, that's not uh, necessarily a bad question to ask. I think it's very natural. It's a natural impulse for us to have. Like, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to the people I love? But when we get to the point, and you can observe this in people, when people get to the point where they conclude, this should not have happened to me. Actually, no, like this, I mean, this is something beyond your control. This should not have happened to me. People actually descend into a very dark place. They become angry and combative with the entire world around them. They become angry and combative with their loved ones. Like this should not have happened. 
And what do they start doing more often than not in these situations? They want to assign blame somewhere. And that's incredibly destructive. This is the danger that Imam Tahawi is talking about. It's like when you go beyond uh, what your knowledge is, like clearly this was decreed for you, but you question it to such an extent that you say, it should not have been decreed for me. That's why it takes you to a dark place. You know, I, I mentioned last week um, that during our discussion on the, the Day of Judgment, that I lost one of my nephews. It was about two years ago. Uh, I lost one of my nephews. He was born prematurely. And in fact, this was a situation of medical malpractice. It was a situation where, you know, had a doctor that, that was taking care of my sister-in-law actually done his due diligence, my nephew probably would have lived. Now, to sort of give you like the opposite example of what an acceptance of the divine decree actually does and how beautiful it is, let me tell you what happened with my brother and my sister-in-law. You know, not once did I see them ever say, why us? They never said, why us? And they certainly never even came close to saying, this shouldn't have happened to us. They, they lived in the moment, and while, while their son was still alive, they, they nursed him, they took care of him. And at his funeral, they got up and they said the most beautiful words of gratitude to God. And they're Christians, by the way. They're Christians. Um, but you could tell that they had an absolute sense of peace about what had transpired. And I'll tell you, like, I'm his big brother, right? I, I've been there sort of watching out for him, protecting him my whole life. That was the first time I ever really felt like I was looking up to him because what he did in that moment was an act of profound beauty and extreme strength, right? But he accepted God's decree throughout that entire trial and if you've ever seen something like this happen, you know, you can see it go both ways. You see how destructive it is when the decree is rejected because it leads a person down an anger, a path of anger and a path of blame and lashing out. The opposite, it leads a person down a path where they become stronger. And that tragedy that befalls them does not destroy them, rather they grow from it. This is the point. This is why Imam Tahawi says it's, it's dangerous to reject or to try to delve into this matter, to amaka, to, to go too deeply into it beyond what you're capable of understanding. Um, so, yeah, you know, this is something I've seen in like mentoring people here at Tatlif as well. You know, people who have questions. I, 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 had a, um, I had a brother come to me who was having like some doubts about his faith. And he asked me the question, he was like, if Allah really wanted us to know that like the Quran is his word, instead of putting the, the words in a book, why didn't he just write it across the sky? And I'm like, I don't really know how to answer that question. Like you're, you know, but you're, you're asking like a question about God's decree. It's like, why did he choose to give us uh, revelation in the form of the written word instead of like some sort of like celestial event where, you know, like the stars write out Bismillah or something like that, right? 
I don't know the answer to your question, but that's because I don't have the capacity to answer that. Nor do you really have the capacity to, to ask that question in a coherent way. It's like disagreeing with gravity. You know, you accidentally step off a cliff. We don't ask, why do we fall? Well, I, I accidentally stepped off a cliff. No one asks, well, what, why did I fall? But we just say, well, it's gravity, right? We call it a law of nature, right? And what these points of faith, this one especially, right? What they all do is, whereas like the laws of nature, the physical laws that characterize the world that we live in, these give us insight into the physical world around us. These points of Iman are giving us insight into the metaphysical world. It's like you understand these, you adhere to these, these are your metaphysical anchors where you, you can think, you can believe clearly and correctly. Same as like with the laws of physics. You understand the laws of physics, you can understand what happens in the world around us in a clear manner. That's what Allah is giving us here uh, with these points of faith. Okay, so let's get into free will because this is always the question. It's like, well, if, if God has his decree, then where is the room for free will? So there's a story uh, of a man who came to Imam Ali, who's the, the cousin of the Prophet And he had exactly this question. He said, you know, I, I want to understand how we believe in both predestination and free will. This is the beautiful thing about the Sahaba, right? The later theologians, like they come up with like very, very profound, very beautiful, but abstract answers. You see what the Sahaba have to say about these topics and it's always very practical. It's like, I'm not gonna sit here and explain it to you. I'm going to show you right now, <laughs> which is exactly what Imam Ali does. He says, lift up one of your legs off the ground. So the man lifts his leg, he's standing on one foot. And Imam Ali says, okay, now keep that foot up and lift the other. And the man says, oh, I can't, that's impossible. Imam Ali says, the first foot was free will, second foot is predestination or qadr, right? You can will, and this is where we get into the distinction between will and power, will and power. I, I mentioned that qadr really is about power, right? But it leaves room for our will. God gives us the power to lift one of our feet up off of the ground, right? He gives us the power to do that. And through our will, if we will that, we can do it. He has not empowered us to lift both of our feet off the ground and, you know, like stay there, right? We'll fall. So that is beyond the scope of our will. So these two things are separate, will and power. And understanding that separation really is the key to like understanding where our free will comes into the scheme of God's qadr, his power. I'm seeing lost looks. So I'm gonna give you another example. So eight birds are sitting on a, a, a post or they're sitting on a, a fence. Four decide to fly away. How many birds are left? 
seeing four. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the correct wrong answer to the trick question. Yeah. Um, we would think four, right? But I said they decided to fly away. They did not actually fly away. To fly away, they would have to muster the will. They would have to actually physically enact their will and start flapping their wings to fly away. There's eight birds sitting there. Because I just said they decided to fly away. Our will does not, our will is not on par. It is not commensurate. It is not equal to our power, right? I could have the will to fly up to the ceiling right now. God has not given me the power to do that. I could have the will to walk out of this building. And I, I absolutely could do that because that is a power that God has granted me. You guys following what I'm, I'm putting out here? God's will and his power are commensurate. And, you know, we actually didn't get too deep into theology this time because it usually bores people. But these are two of the 13 attributes of God, his will and his power. When God wills something, he absolutely has the power to enact it. When we will something, we may or may not have the power to enact it. It depends on how God has empowered us, right? Whether through like our physical bodies, whether through our mental capacities, right? Whether through like our ability to actually imagine possibilities that we could will. You know, what's interesting about being a father is like you see examples of all this in your children. One of the really interesting things I noticed about my two sons is that their will actually started to grow with their power. So, you know, they're babies, they're, they're, they're newborn infants. All they can do is lay there. They can't really do much else. You put an infant on the bed, you can walk away. And until they start getting the ability to roll over, you know that they'll be right there until you come back. Now, the thing I noticed is that newborns, they don't have a will for much of anything except eating and sleeping, because that is all that is within their power to do. Now, they start becoming mobile, like this guy back here, mashallah. They get mobile, and they start developing a will for all kinds of things, usually like you know your phone and things you don't want them touching. Anything that comes into their immediate vicinity is like, oh, I want to touch that. I want to grab it. I want to take your glasses off your face and get my little fingerprints all over it. Their will starts to grow the more that their power develops, the more physically capable they become. Now, we have wills because, you know, we, we have imaginations. We have wills that go beyond what our power actually enables. And so we have a certain amount of free will. When we will to do something, and we embark on that journey to actually go get it. What we understand in our theology is that God has empowered us to enact that will. The power is not our own, but the will is. So everything happens by God's qadr, by his power. But the things that we will, those are indeed our own. We can, uh, we can will anything that we want, even things that are impossible for us, like flying around the room for example. We can will anything that we want, um, but it is God who gives us the power to actually do things that we want to do, or he deprives us of the power to do things that we want to do. That's how the two mesh up in our theology.
And hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully that makes sense. But this also plays into the question of evil, which we, we've addressed a little bit. You know, it's like, why do bad things happen? I mean, and we live in a world where truly terrible things happen, right? Um, you know, uh, just geopolitically, over my time as a Muslim. You know, I, I lived in Egypt, Yemen, Syria, like places you can't go anymore. Why? Because terrible things have happened in those places, right? Like there, there are places in Syria that just don't exist anymore the way that they used to. Um, you know, alhamdulillah for me, you know, it, I got to, to see a world that I had no idea at the time, but it was slipping away, right? But these places were, the people in these places, especially like they were the victims of incredible evil, right? Like the famine that is ongoing in Yemen is unspeakable. It's unspeakable. But it is through this distinction between will and power that we actually understand the problem of evil. In theology, we would call this theodicy, like the, the part of theology that addresses evil. It actually literally means the justification of God. It's like, how can you believe in a God? This is a very common question that you hear um, from people who do not believe in God. How can you believe in a God who allows such evil things to happen? Well, our will is indeed our own. We can use it as we wish. It's up to us. God has enabled us through his power to use that will within certain limitations as we wish in this world. We understand through this that God has created evil. He does not will it to happen. He doesn't want bad things to happen to people, but part of the trial, part of the test of this life is that they do. They do happen. And God tells us how we ought to respond to this over and over in the Quran. Be patient, persevere, see your way through it, find your way to a place of gratitude, right? But this is part of our trial as human beings. And, you know, mashallah, at the end of the day, this is one of the things that makes us worthy of Jannah of heaven. Um, but that is how we address free will and predestination and the problem of evil. It's actually the same mechanism. It's that distinction between will and power. Uh, so I'll leave it there, inshallah. That is the divine decree. That wraps up our section on Iman, which means, you know, we're going through the hadith of Jibreel, alayhi salam. So Jibreel asked the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, what is Iman? We've covered that now. He asked him, what is Islam? And then the Prophet says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that it is to testify that there is nothing worthy of worship except for God, and that Muhammad is the messenger of God. It's to establish the prayer, to pay alms, to fast in Ramadan, and to go on Hajj, if you are able to do so, to go on the pilgrimage. So over the coming weeks, we're going to discuss what is more commonly known as the five pillars of Islam, right? But really like these are our acts of worship. And so what we'll be getting into, um, whereas the articles of faith, the six points of faith that we have talked about, these are um, something that we use intellectual tools to understand. We actually use uh, logic and reasoning to understand these things. When we get into the acts of worship, we're using our legal language. 
So not only we will be talking about the, uh, the five pillars, but we will be talking about the Sharia, our divine law. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about what the, the language of the Sharia is. Um, so that as we go forward, we understand, like, you know, when we talk about the prayer, um, we can make distinctions between things like uh, obligatory prayers and recommended prayers. Uh, we can make the distinction between uh, obligatory actions and forbidden actions. We'll be speaking in this language going forward, inshallah. All right. We'll end it there, inshallah. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wal-asr inna al-insana lafi khusr. Ila ladhina amanu wa'amilu salihati wa tawassal bil-haqi wa tawassal bil-sabr. Ameen. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.